This is an ABC podcast. This is Baby Talk Podcast with Penny Johnston. Have you ever felt overwhelmed and exhausted by the big, important issues facing the world today? We've got a list. COVID, climate change, Black Lives Matter, all coming on the back of floods, bushfires. And being parents, I suspect every single one of us has wondered what the future could hold for our children if things don't change and quickly. But there's only so much you can do on your own. Too much doom scrolling on social media, even watching the news can become debilitating. So how do we start to turn this around, to give ourselves a reason to get out of bed and start caring for ourselves and our families? I think I came into parenting with very fixed ideas of what success looked like, if that makes sense. You know, the person who was able to run a business and be a great parent and be present and have a Instagrammable nursery and you always have a tidy house. And for people to say, you know, friends to say, I don't know how you do it all. Like that to me, for some reason, was what I had sort of absorbed as success. Brooke McCallery is a woman who's been caught in the trap of wanting to have it all. A dalliance with postnatal depression and just plain overwhelm began a significant change of lifestyle for her, a whole new way of living. She wrote a book called Slow, talking about making that change, and her new book, Care, gives us some lovely practical ways to create rituals of self-care. It was so nice to catch up with Brooke, to talk to her about how life unfolds as a parent. To start off with, I asked her to describe what she does these days. I usually would say that I'm an author and a podcaster, but then I'll, you know, go into oversharing mode and be like, and I do little bits and pieces all over the place. (laughs) But author and podcaster. Yeah, as well as being a parent. But what did you used to, what did life used to look like for you? I was a very fast-minded person. I ran a business. I had a jewellery label of my own and lived a really, really hectic kind of lifestyle. As the parent of, of two kids, my husband would work really long hours. He'd commute three hours a day, that kind of thing. So my life was the antithesis of slow. <laughs> and you were still doing this with children, long yes, commutes, I was. The, busy, the busy lady thing. Usually people have a, a bit of an epiphany about when life has to change. For a lot of us, it's when you suddenly find yourself home alone with the baby, but you, you survived that. <laughs> And and we're still going a million miles. I'll use survived in a very loose term, (laughs) in a very loose sense. Look, I, I think I came into parenting with very fixed ideas of what success looked like, if that makes sense. You know, the person who was able to run a business and be a great parent and be present and have a instagrammable nursery and you always have a tidy house and for people to say you know friends to say I don't know how you do it all like that to me for some reason was what I had sort of absorbed as success as a parent so I fought for for maybe the first two to three years of being a parent for that which was completely to my detriment and it wasn't really until my second baby was born uh, and he was about six weeks old that I real- realised that A, what I was trying to do was completely unsustainable and B, there was something quite significantly up with my mental health. So that was sort of the the moment that I started to, to think that maybe this, you know, this, this 
this treadmill that I was on was not serving me particularly well. Yes. I, although I'm sort of, I feel like I have to overshare here and say, I don't think anybody's ever asked me how I do it all. So obviously I must just live in chaos. No, I think it was more like, you know, I bought wholeheartedly into that myth of like the woman who had it all. And I think partly to blame would be, you know, the media that I was consuming, like the magazines, and I was reading a lot of business blogs and this was sort of early podcasting days, but business podcasts. And it was all these stories of mostly women who had somehow managed to strike this magical balance where they could work on their business from home and be parents and rake in, you know, good money and, and, and. And, you know, I felt like I fell for it. So it wasn't even so much that I expected my friends to say that to me. It was like, one day I will be a capital S success. And this is what people will say about me. I mean, no one ever did because it's absurd. But that was, I think, where that idea came from. That myth of starting a business while you're home with the babies, I mean, that that's still, it's still circulating like a bad chain letter. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely is. I think hopefully at least the conversation has shifted a little. If there's silver linings from the last 18 months, it will hopefully be that there are literally only 24 hours in the day and we can only get so much done. And, you know, to compare our 24 hours a day to someone else's 24 hours a day is really unhelpful for our own mental health, but also just for having a diverse idea of what success can look like. It doesn't have to look a particular mm. way. Mm. I guess a lot of people would have heard your name or know of you from your book, Slow, but I'm really interested in, because obviously that's the way you live your life now. Was there something that flipped the switch? Was there something that happened that mm. made you decide that there had to be another way? Yeah, there was. It sort of all came crashing down when our son was about, uh, he was a couple of months old and I found myself staring at my reflection in the mirror, just sort of saying over and over again, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that probably wasn't the first time I had felt like that, but it was the first time that there was this little voice in the back of my head going, hey, um, are you okay? Like, I don't know that it needs to be like this. And that was probably the first time that I ever really wondered whether or not because up until then this is horrible to say but up until yeah. then I sort of felt like parenting was to be miserable oh. you know yeah. uh, like awful awful thing to say but it was I, I it, now I know that I had severe postnatal depression but at the time I didn't know I just mm. thought that this was parenting and man it's a hard gig and you know I don't know why everyone talks about it with such you know, <laughs> such big smiles on their faces but that day I was thank goodness, I was able to listen to that voice. And I called my husband and I said, I'm not okay. And I called my mum and she came up and sat with me until he could come home. And I was so fortunate that I could go and see my GP and we had a conversation about my mental health and I was seeing a, a psychiatrist within the week. And I saw her for many, many, many months. And, you know, she put me on some antidepressants, which really helped me. But it was during one of these conversations with her that I was complaining about just being constantly busy, you know, constantly having something else to do. 
you know, I can't sit down and enjoy playing with my kids because I have these things to do or, you know, I was just so used to the idea of busyness. And she looked at me, this particular conversation, and she said, well, have you ever considered doing less? And I looked at her and I, I found myself really offended. <laughs> like, but, but don't you know, there's all this stuff that I need to do. And it kind of got under my skin and I left quite upset about the whole conversation, but got home and that night I Googled, how do I simplify my life? And that was where I guess the whole exploration of, you know, simplicity and simple living and minimalism and slow living all began because I found this whole subculture of people who had decided to do away with that myth that I had fallen for, that, you know, in order to be successful or happy, you need to, to get onto this rung of the ladder and then you keep climbing. And they had said no to that and on, on the other side had found what I could never find, which was contentment. So that was sort of the, the real origin, I guess, of the, the whole shift. And, of course, then everything was perfect. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's how it works, you know, of one course. and done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just you threw out a few old clothes that didn't suit you and then yeah. that was it. Then I was just blissfully happy. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. It's so hard to let go of, like, our, th our thought patterns. Because I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to be this person who lives a simple life, who declutters, who minimizes, I'm going to be the best minimalist <laughs> in the whole world yep. and I'm going to do it as quick as possible and then everything will be joyous forever. And I discovered when I was trying to declutter my entire garage in a weekend that that is not the way to go. Hmm. I just made piles of things, took them out of boxes, made piles of things that I was going to keep and donate and recycle and so on. And I kept adding to these piles and piles until all the piles merged into one. And I realized I was just surrounded by this unholy mess of stuff. Mm. And I closed the garage door and I walked away and I left it for like a year or something. Oh, so thank goodness you confessed to that. <laughs> and then I thought, okay, well, I need to go small. Like what's the smallest thing that I can do? that will help me feel like I have simplified something. And, you know, I did the junk drawer in the kitchen or the cutlery drawer or the medicine cabinet and all the empty shampoo bottles in the, in the bathroom. And I just did one of those at a time um, and found that that was ironically actually far better for me in terms of learning how to simplify than trying to do the entire ridiculous garage. Yeah. Because it's not just you with children and a partner or even no partner but just children. Again, it's it's not just you and living with other people and whatever their accoutrements are is part of it. Exactly. And that is the word, accepting, you know, because the first sort of few months I thought of myself quite smugly, you know. I thought, <laughs> well, I would be... I could happily have a hundred items in my home yeah. if I didn't have children or a husband. You know, they're the ones with all of the, the junk. Until I started actually decluttering my own stuff and I realized, you know, a fair majority of it was actually mine. <laughs> so, yeah, I think if anyone is kind of hoping to simplify, my only encouragement would be to start with your own stuff and don't worry about other people's to begin with. You know, it, there may well be less of that than 
you thought. Yeah. Um, but you also You'll can't have drag enough to people. go on with. Exactly. <laughs> you really will. And you cannot drag people kicking and screaming into a new way of life because they will resent you and resist you. Uh, especially children. It's hard. But, you know, I think with kids, uh, like there's to a certain extent, obviously, we can encourage them to make decisions and give mm. them parameters and boundaries within which they can make their own choices. But it's also, I think as parents, it's our job to let our kids be who they are too, mm. you know. And my one of my kids, is a, he's a collector. He loves rocks and sticks and, you know, strange things that he finds all over the place. And that's part of who he is. So, uh, it, you know, as someone who probably does have a, a fairly minimalist point of view just naturally, that was a bit of a challenge for me. But it really, once you kind of land on the idea that, we can guide our kids, but ultimately they are who they are. Yeah. Uh, you know, you kind of let go of some of the rigidity of what you think it should look like. Yeah. I'm sure it's all part of the universe teaching us a, a lesson about children. <laughs> 100%. You've written a new book and presumably you started working on this during the pandemic. How did it affect you? Yeah. I actually started writing what became this book before... COVID. So I started writing it in September of 2019. Initially, it was going to be more of an investigation into what the self-care industry had become and why it felt so inaccessible to most of us most of the time. And then Black Summer bushfires happened oh. and then the floods that came <laughs> on the heels of the fires happened and the area that I live in was flooded and was also bushfire affected. And then COVID happened. And, you know, so I found myself in this position of being completely burnt out from caring about all of these huge global issues, these collective, really kind of world-shaking things that were that were happening. I think COVID is, is a really good example of one of those things. But I was doom scrolling. I was, you know, trying to be informed, trying to be a good citizen. And one day I just woke up and I couldn't get out of bed, you know, and I was completely and utterly spent. And that was the beginning of me shifting the book into something that was much more um, gentle, first of all, because I think I wrote the book that I needed, <laughs> as I often do. Mm. Also, that took this idea of care and I realized that care sort of operates on a spectrum. So we've got big care and that's stuff like COVID and climate change and Black Lives Matters and, you know, these huge global collective issues. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have self-care in the way that it is sold to us at the moment, you know, products and programs and, you know, lots of wellness, all of which aren't necessarily bad things, but I think they are really inaccessible to a lot of people. So the question for me was, what's in the middle? You know, what can it look like to practice these small acts of care that have positive impact on, you know, me as an individual? But I was also curious to see what would happen to, you know, my family, my relationships, my community, my sense of belonging. And I realized that all of these really small acts of care that I was practicing as I was writing the book had these really powerful ripple effects that reached a lot further than I expected. And, you know, as I said, it was the book that I needed to to read. So 
It was the book that I wrote and everything that I wrote about was something that I experimented with. It's really important to recognise that we do all need to care for ourselves because really nobody else is going to or is able to do that. Yeah, and I think that particularly as parents, we we just we don't do that. That's not behaviour that's necessarily modelled for us very often. And I know I fell hook, line and sinker for the idea that self-care or self-nourishment or, you know, it's all selfish, it's all indulgent, self-indulgent. And it's really not because as I discovered, and I know I, I, I don't think I was alone last year in discovering it, if you are burnt out, if you are all cared out, you can't effectively turn around and care for your family or your community or your friends or your parents because we, we don't have an infinite amount of energy. And if we're not topping it up, then not only are we missing out ourselves, but our friends and our family are missing out on the best of us. So it sort of turned out for me that even these small acts of care that were other focused, you know, kindness and connection, they sort of turned out to be self-care anyway, in bolstering our, our spirit or filling up our our cup, I guess, to use the mm. cliche. It's almost really important for us to hear this from you because you have experienced the worst of the mental health issues and the best of them as well. You've walked the walk. To be perfectly honest, I wish I could write <laughs> without having to have lived things. Of course, absolutely, <laughs> 100%, And I do, I completely yeah. understand where you're coming from. I think part of the process last year for me was it was painful. Mm. You know, it was... I feel like this book took quite a lot from me because of the world being what it was and my, my mental health being what it was. And I'm, I'm glad, you know, if one person can read this book and go, oh, yeah, me too, then I think I've done what I wanted to do. Because ultimately, when I read back over it after I'd finished it, I was sort of the one saying, oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that might be important as well is that for a lot of us, we are going to experience the really big mental health issue and whether it's hearing a voice saying unkind things or mm. in our head, you know, we, we owe it to ourselves to honour that and get that checked and ask for professional help if we really do need it. Absolutely. that And that's one of the main kind of threads that I, I always try and weave through my work mm. because, I mean, I am all for and will always encourage people to go and talk to someone. If you're able to talk to a doctor talk to a doctor if you're able to call a mental health hotline or go into a clinic or something like that then do that but if that's not accessible to you in the moment talk to someone mm. you know whether you're able to talk to a friend or a family member or just get in touch with with somebody because I think that there's a lot of ideas that are floating around the world including some of the ones in my book that are really beneficial to us when we're having mental health struggles pop up but at the same time there is always good reason to talk to professionals or to talk to other people and get the help you need. Because again, that's something that I was really lucky to have done. I think that's the reason for me having been able to navigate it because I had that framework, that kind of professional framework as well. Yeah. Plus, honestly, antidepressant medication <laughs> at times as well. Heck yes. <laughs> Sometimes even just saying it out loud to somebody can help you process it to try and find a way through? Yeah, that's it. And, you know, it's messy. And I think that if we can talk about the messiness of it, if we can talk mm. about the 
the humanness of it and some days we'll feel harder than others and some days we will convince ourselves that you know we're okay uh it's not linear and it's not neat so i think that even talking about it and and allowing yourself to try things and just develop that ability to reflect on how they they feel for you rather than judging them as a success or a failure is also kind of a kind way of doing it in the book what are some of your favorite things you couldn't have done absolutely all of them <laughs> were there some favorites to just use on yourself yeah i think that for me they they're all things that will come and go you know like there's nine chapters which are the nine core ideas of the book and they're all different ways to approach care or different ways that care can look in your life at, at any given time and for me some came more naturally than others so time spent in nature was something that i sort of discovered as a as a mental health tool back when i was first diagnosed with postnatal depression and barefoot bush walking or even just walking barefoot on the grass at the park or in in my backyard is something that immediately brings me back into awareness of my senses and i think anything that we can do that brings us back to noticing in the moment is really really powerful because essentially that's mindfulness and i used to hear the term mindfulness and think what what is that you know what does that mean <laughs> and i discovered that it's really just the opposite of mindlessness and that was how i had been living for the longest time so just paying attention anything that you can do that gets you to to pay attention is is brilliant the thing that i probably was m- most nervous to write about and really initially struggled to practice but can now see absolutely the benefit of it is play i'm like i'm not the playful parent <laughs> in our family i'm you know the earnest one i'm maybe like i'm sarcastic but i don't think i'm fun necessarily as that's the story i'd told myself anyway my husband was the one on the trampoline and chasing the kids around So I had convinced myself that I wasn't playful. And I was having a conversation with my brother-in-law one day at a water park. We were both talking about how we weren't fun. We weren't the fun parents. And I realized later that we were having that conversation while we were lining up to go on a water slide. <laughs> <laughs> And That's fairly our fun. kids I think oh, I think it's fairly fun. Our kids weren't on the water slide. It was just him and me <laughs> lining up <laughs> to go on this water slide. And you know, that kind of made me reflect that fun and playfulness can be virtually anything we want it to be. Really challenging myself to think playfully has been brilliant and certainly doesn't come naturally. And the benefits of that to your own mental well-being, your physical health, your relationships is huge that really surprised me it would be a great book as a gift it would be a great book to read instead of as you say that beautiful word doom scrolling through <laughs> the internet feed of everybody else's perfect life the, the book's out now isn't it it should be available it just is. about everywhere yeah yeah all good bookstores and online all the usual suspects should certainly have it the radical art of taking time gosh have you got more time now since you've made these changes in your life that's a really good question my perception of time has changed so i feel like i have more of it to use or the time that i have feels like more because that's one of the tools actually that i mentioned in the beginning of the book is how to bend time by noticing by noticing tiny details or new things we actually change our relationship with time and it makes us feel like we have more of it so that i think is 
most days how <laughs> I, I, I feel with time. I don't get that urgent, rushing, you missed it kind of sense all the time like I used to. And how is the garage? <laughs> we knocked the garage down. And we put in a veggie bed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. So we, we got rid of all the junk and we grew veggies instead. Did much of it make its way back in the house or it all got donated? No, it all got donated. Oh. That was the rule. Once it was, once it was sorted, it did not go back in the house. And I'm sure the kids snuck bits and pieces in, but, um, you know, on the whole, it certainly didn't make its way back in. Brooke McCullery is the author of Care, The Radical Art of Taking Time, and her book is available all over the place at the moment. Brooke McCullery is also a podcaster. You can find her on the Slow Home Podcast. And Baby Talk is a weekly podcast and you will find some great topics that we've done lately, including last week's catch up with Osher Gunsberg and Charlie Clausen, two pretty famous dads who were talking about their experience of becoming a father. We jump online and we want to make sure that we get the, the safest car seat. We, we, you know, we want to make sure that we get the, the best bottle warmer and the best crib and the safest this. And we're like, how can we make sure that we're the safest? How can we make sure we're the best? How can we make sure that we are the, 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 of the most value to not only the child but also to a partner? And if that means you know, taking yourself off and getting yourself sorted out, then mm. that's what it is. You can find that podcast and many others on the Baby Talk website. And the podcast is also available on iTunes and the ABC Listen app, where you can easily subscribe so you don't miss another episode. I'm Penny Johnston. I'll see you next time on Baby Talk. ABC Baby Talk is a weekly podcast on ABC Radio, wherever you get your podcasts and on the ABC Listen app. Like us on Facebook to find out as soon as a new episode is ready. Just search for ABC Baby Talk. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.